Sunday's our, our inspiration, Wednesday's our instruction, and small groups our involvement. And so I really prepared this to be an instruction message. I was going to speak this on Wednesday night, and, uh, and God, really, God really spoke to me, really kind of dealt with my heart and told me, I need to preach this on a Sunday. And so I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be a meaty, meaty message. I didn't want you to think I said needy message, uh, a meaty message. There's going to be some substance, sustenance, substance, sustenance. I combined two words there um, here today. And so tap your neighbor and say, are you awake? And now whoever you tapped... They are your responsibility to keep them awake in case they get bored. And we got back from Bible quizzing six hours away at like one in the morning. So I don't know who's keeping me awake, but if I just start to doze off with the, with the mic in my hand, somebody wake me up too. Hopefully I don't get bored at my own message. That would be bad. When disaster strikes, we usually will respond in one of two ways. We either turn toward God and enter a deeper or a new relationship with him, shaped by a fuller understanding of who he is and his character. Or we turn away from God and we blame him and others for our problems. Usually that will, will I'm either going to turn toward him or away from him. Disaster, tragedy can make you bitter or better. It will either be a mile marker, you know, when you're driving somewhere and you see those green signs. If you didn't know that, I'm giving you a driving tip right now. Those are mile markers. You know, you're ever in an accident somewhere and you're like, I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I just passed mile markers. So, so when you're driving, pay attention to those things. But a mile marker, that's not where I'm headed. It's just a, it's just a, a sign along the journey. And disaster can either be a mile marker or it can be a gravestone. It's either, hey, I remember I passed this point along my journey, or this is where I stopped in my journey. And today we're going to look at just a short, a three-chapter book in the Bible, just a short, a, a short book in the Word of God. And it's in the Old Testament. It's the book of Joel. And I want to preach on this topic, the valley of decision, the valley of of decision. You know, Joel's ministry was at a time of apparent disaster in Israel's history. Israel was really going through it. Uh, they would be faced with this same choice that we face during disaster. Are we going to turn toward God or are we going to turn away from God? Joel prophesied to the people of Judah and Jerusalem in the midst of catastrophe, he, the catastrophe that threatened their very existence. You see, a locust plague of unprecedented proportions. It had struck the land. Now, you might not know what a locust is, okay? Well, millions of voracious insects arrived in wave after wave after wave to consume every green plant, vegetable gardens, grain crops, grapevines, fruit trees, and even the grass upon which the, the, the sheep and the goats would graze. See, it wasn't like they could just go buy Hostess cupcakes to, to, you know, with the preservatives to fulfill them. That, that wasn't around back then. I didn't even realize the depth of destruction that a locust could cause until I did some research. How destructive are locusts? Well, listen, they're devastating. 
The desert locust, which is likely the type of locust that we read about in the Bible, consumes its own body weight, which is about two grams, every single day. That doesn't sound like much. Two grams, that's not a big deal. I mean, are you serious? What are we talking about here? But when you realize that they come in massive swarms, those numbers start to add up. Swarms have been known to cover more than 400 square miles. As each swarm can team up and they can, there can be as many as 100 million locusts per mile. Do a little math and you'll find that 100 million multiplied by 400 square miles comes to 40 billion locusts eating two grams per day. That's about 176 pounds that they eat each day. If they were people eaters, instead of consumers of vegetation, they would eat 1.7 million people per day. So when we just fly through the book of Joel and say, yeah, there was a locust, that locust, those little bugs, what's the big deal, a bunch of whiners? Like, no, 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 let's, let's understand the context here of what was truly happening in Israel. It was devastating. Destructive. In the face of such disaster, all human and animal life was at risk. And remember, in the ancient world, you couldn't just jump online and call Scott's Lawn Care Service or Ryan's Tree and Lawn. Okay, they should give me some money for, for advertising for them. There were no insecticides to kill the locusts. You weren't like, hey, Ryan's Tree and Lawn, they're booked, so I'm going to run to Lowe's. I'm going to grab some insecticide and the Scott's Turf Feeder and try and figure out which one of those numbers. It's always confusing. There's like 1 to 18. You're like, what did you turn it on 18? It just pours out on the ground. You turn it on 1, you walk, and you're like, is anything even coming out of here? You're not sure how much to use the broadcast spreader. Anybody ever been in that boat, or is it just me? All right, there's about five of you. Great. Either you're smarter than me or you've never tried to do it yourself. So we'll, we'll see. But there, were no stock, there was no stocking up of <clears throat> non-perishable canned food. They wouldn't be in, And even if there was, like I say, I made a joke about Hostess cupcakes. They wouldn't have been interested in eating Hostess cupcakes. And I probably shouldn't be either. They just taste good. I know they're fake, but... There was no Red Cross. There was no FEMA that could just pull in and provide emergency care or bring resources to the area. Such a plague brought with it a, the specter of death for thousands and thousands of people, especially the very young and the very old. During such a perilous time, it was only natural for the people of Judah and Jerusalem that they would ask hard questions, hard questions about God and his nature and his mercy. Is God truly in charge of heaven and earth? Is he sovereign? Is he good? Why would he let this happen? They also looked inward at their own sin and moral responsibility for the plague. They looked everywhere trying to figure out. You ever have that happen in your life? Something happens and it, it's not going like you thought it would go or what you'd want to happen. And you start to go, could I have done something? What did I do? Where did I go wrong? And they started to do that. And so this short three-chapter book of Joel, it consists of almost three equal parts. The first section of the book, Joel is the prophet. He's, he's describing the devastating locust plague 
afflicting Jude, uh, uh, Judah and uh, Jerusalem. The second section is the Lord promising to take pity on his people and restore them after the locust plague. And then the third and final section is Joel turning his attention to the more distant future. You see, a time where God would restore spiritual lives, not just the physical problem, but the spiritual issue. It would be during this time, that spiritual restoration, that God says he will pour out his spirit upon people who will respond to him. With this important background, I just want to dive into this for a few minutes this, morning, this afternoon about the inspired writing of Joel, the words and the message of this prophet. It kicks off as God gives Joel these words. In Joel 1.1, 1, 1, the Lord gave this message to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you leaders of the people. Listen, all who live in the land, in all your history, has anything like this happened before? I'm guessing if he posed that question, did it or did it not? Think about that. And then he says, tell your children about it in the years to come. Let your children tell their children Pass the story down from generation to generation. Before we even get into this account, God speaks to his people and he puts a burden of responsibility upon parents to do what? To pass something down from generation to generation. Each account, not just blessings, but adversity, that should be passed down. Don't hide your children from the adversity that you've gone through. Make sure that they know, hey, there was a time, mom and dad, we went through this. This is what life looked like. Here, I grew up where my dad carried mugshots in his Bible, and I could sit here impromptu right now and take the next 30 minutes and tell you my dad's whole story about going to rob and trying to rob from Walgreens and call his own prescriptions in and how he owed drug dealers money and he was going to rob another restaurant which he was managing and, and how God delivered him and he carried mugshots around and he didn't hide that from me. He let me know this is what God did in our lineage. This is what God delivered me from. This is, what, this is what your future could have looked like. But God stepped in and God provided and God changed our lives. And so no matter what you've gone through, if, even if it's adversity, people should know your story. That's, after all, that's what a, a testimony is. And if you don't know, if you're like, well, I've never worked on my testimony, that might sound weird to you, but you should actually write out and work on your testimony. I don't care if you have to stand in front of a mirror and practice your testimony. Now, I know that sounds so crazy to some people, but you need to know that that might be the most important thing that you have for this world. And so you should perfect it. You should write that thing down. You should look at the mirror and go, hey, this is what God did for me. I was here. I went there. And this is what God delivered me out of. And this is what I used to be a part of. And you don't have to just be in drugs, alcohol, and prison to have a testimony, okay? You can say, this is what God kept me from. This is, what, this is the, the route I could have taken. But God stepped in. And so... These things point to God's strength. He can bless. He can overcome. He can deliver. He can set free. He can heal. <clears throat> but we have to listen. We have to obey, follow God's plan. And our children, they've got to know this. Because it's not only important that they know this, but God says your children have to pass it on to their children. So my responsibility 
Talking about the future again. Talking about all that stuff in the beginning of this message. Life insurance and a will and executor, all that stuff. <clears throat> but it's not just making sure my calling and election are sure. But I want to make sure that if something happens to me, it's not just my, I hope my kids live for God. I've got to have my kids ready for them to help their kids live for God. There's got to be some strength in there. There's got to be some teaching, some training for my children that if something happens to me, I'm not just going, man, God, I hope we make it to heaven. And by the way, I hope my kids make it to heaven too. I'm going, Lord, help them to know where to stand and how to stand on their own two feet how to make it through the trials and the tribulations and maybe something I've told them about some of the things I've gone through that they can say, hey, but you know what? Just like in the Old Testament, those 12 rocks are standing there. Why? Oh, why should we set those 12 rocks up by the Jordan River? Because every single time you walk by those, somebody should be able to say, that's where God parted the water. That's where God performed a miracle for us. That's where God did these things. We've got to be able to, to, to pass that on to our children where if something happens, they, they're not just going to serve God. They're going to make sure that their kids serve God. And so Joel begins to paint a picture of what was happening in Judah and Jerusalem. In Joel 1, 4, it says, after the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locust took what was left. After them came the hopping locust and then the stripping locust too. My goodness, I didn't even know there's all these kinds of locusts, but none of them are good. And then he says... After all that, doesn't sound nice. He says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Man, they just got away with stuff in, 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 in their messages we couldn't, we couldn't get away with today. <laughs> I mean, right now, if y'all were sleeping and I said, wake up, you drunkards. Yeah. <laughs> you might be like, what did you just say? He says, wail, all you wine drinkers. All the grapes are ruined. Your sweet wine is gone. A vast army of locusts has invaded my land, a terrible army too numerous to count. There's a lot of them. He says, its teeth are like lion's teeth. Its fangs like those of a lioness. Remember in the Old Testament, Joel, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel, they're all dealing with a present-day situation. If you've ever read the Old Testament prophets, they're writing about a present-day situation for them. But they're also viewed as prophetic books. Now, why is that? Because even though they were writing about what was going on at that moment in their life, in their time, they were also dealing with something that was on the horizon, sometimes hundreds or thousands of years on the horizon. And what was going on, they would connect that to something else. What I mean by this is Isaiah was dealing with a prophet's child at one point. But then he says, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. And he starts, as he's talking about what's going on at that moment, he starts really, it becomes a prophetic word of what? Jesus Christ. Ezekiel says, hey, I had this vision in this valley of dry bones. And God says, can these dry bones live? Lord, you know. And he, well, I want you to prophesy. Why? And he, and he goes down and what he's talking about is a situation there. And he sees this valley of dry bones. But what the prophetic word was about was Israel would one day, once again, even though it was a, a, a dead and gone nation, it would be revived. 
And it would once again be a nation in May 15, 1948, only nation in human history to have ever been completely abolished. And then it once again becomes a nation once again. And so what I'm saying is they were dealing with something here. But as they wrote these, as God inspired them to pen these stories and, and these words, they were prophetic for not just today, but what was on the horizon. And so Joel, here he's talking about a locust plague. And then he says, they, they, they just had teeth like lions. And, and that immediately took me to the book of Revelation. It's an apocalyptic book, a book of end times. And the apostle John is describing a time where the world is going to end. And he's talking about God is going to start pouring out his wrath upon the earth. And he's describing what Revelation calls seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven vials, which are three sets of seven things that God begins to do and pour his wrath out on the earth. And in Revelation 9, it says, verse 1, then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And when he opened it, smoke poured out of that bottomless pit from a huge furnace. And the sunlight and the air turned dark from the smoke. So John is seeing this, this vision. He's, he's trying to pen what God's given him in this vision. And he says, and then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth. And they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm. Now, this is different. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Interesting. Totally different. Joel is going, hey, this is what is happening. Joel is saying, this is, this is a locust plague that we have going on. And then he says, but you know what? In Revelation, those locusts that had teeth like lions, there's going to be a day where in the end times, the smoke is going to arise and the locusts will go from the earth. But in that day, they're going to be commanded, do not touch the grass and the vegetation. Instead, go after the people. Those with the seal of God could not be touched. What exactly is the seal of of God. Revelation doesn't clarify that, but a seal guarantees safety. It's a mark of ownership. It certifies that something is real or authentic. In a, in a, in a time where maybe not everything is real or authentic, the seal. My kids collect sports cards, and they have different ways to tell if that's authentic or not. You can hold up money, and in, inside, a, this is another thing. If you ever still carry cash, you can hold up money on light, and there's a little strip on one side that says if it's authentic or not. I'm dropping these, these knowledge nuggets just in case, you know, mile markers, strips, and money. The church is known as the bride of Christ. In Revelation, the saints of God are dressed in white, Scripture says, when exactly do we become the bride of Christ? We receive that, that seal. Well, we've covered this a lot recently, and that is when we 
repent of our sins. We go down into the water. We take on the name, just like when someone is getting married. Do you take this person, be lawfully wedded husband or wife, and then the bride receives the name of the bridegroom. That's when we take on that name in the waters of baptism. And it's here where your prayer is heard. When you pray a prayer of repentance and you find a place, I don't care if it's there, here, wherever, God, forgive me. God, help me. Forgive me of my sins. Lord, I need you to, I don't want to live like this. God hears your prayer. Absolutely hears your prayer. But your sins are not washed away. He lays out a plan that intertwines with one another, one step to the next. And so you can say, well, I've already repented of my sins. That is awesome. But the remnant of sin is still on your life. He wants to wash away, not only say I forgive, but I want to wash away the sin. And I want to do, do that not just as at one spiritual act, but I want that to be where you take on my name and we enter into covenant relationship. And therefore, you can be the bride of Christ as we walk with one another. I promise you, marriage really is a type and shadow of God's design for the church. You see, John the Revelator was describing locusts in the last days. But Joel is describing locusts that were there on site destroying all of the grass, the plants, the trees. And here they were to destroy people in the book of Revelation. And so when you go to Revelation chapter 9, verse 5, it says they were told not to kill them, going back to the people. It says they, those locusts were commanded not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. I guarantee you there are not a lot of pulpits in America preaching this passage this morning. I guess that makes me unique. Just how many people... How many live streams are you going to watch where somebody's going to say, and it, they were there to torture them. It was like the sting of a scorpion. But why would we ignore scripture? Just because it's not popular, because it's not fun to preach, because the response is quiet. But this is scripture. This is a picture of the last day that John the Revelator is writing, and he says, Hey, I, what I saw is locusts when that abyss opened up and the smoke billowed out. Locusts were given freedom. And instead of like the locusts we know, instead of going after vegetation and grass, they were commanded not to and instead go after people who didn't have the mark of the Lord on them. In those days, people will seek death. They will want to die but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. That doesn't sound enjoyable. That doesn't sound like anything I want to be a part of, nor do you, but it's still scripture. Check out how John sees the locust in Revelation and note the similarity between the description of the teeth in Joel and Revelation. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle, John says. They, they had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion, which is exactly the way the prophet 
in the Old Testament described them thousands of years earlier. They wore armor made of iron and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions and for five months they had the power to torment people. Again, he's writing with God's wrath on the earth. John, Joel is basically warning when he's writing in the Old Testament. He says, today the locusts are here to destroy vegetation. But then he says, wake up. He says, the next time locusts are coming, they're here to destroy people. Joel 1, 7, it says, listen to this and follow along here. It says, it has destroyed my grapevines, ruined my fig trees, stripping their bark, destroying it, leaving the branches uh, white and bare, weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband. Listen to the, listen to the way he writes this. For there's no grain or wine to offer the temple of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. The ministers of the Lord, are, they're weeping. The fields are, wound, are ruined. The, the land is stripped bare. The grain is destroyed. The grapes have shriveled. The olive oil is gone. He's not a real popular preacher right now. People aren't paying to get tickets to his messages. Despair, all you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Weep, because the wheat and barley, all the crops of the field are ruined. The grapevines have dried up. The, the fig trees have withered. The pomegranate trees, palm trees, and apple trees, all the trees, they've dried up. People's joy has dried up with them. Doesn't sound like a place I want to live. Dress yourselves in burlap and weep, you priests. Wail, you who serve before the altar, come spend the night in burlap, you ministers of God. There's no grain or wine to offer at the temple of your God. Announce a time of fasting. Why? Because when things are bad, you don't turn away from God. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of your God. Cry out to him from there. The day of the Lord is near. The day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. Our food disappears before our eyes. No joyful celebrations are held in the house of our God. The seeds die in the parched ground. The grain crops fall, uh, fail. The barns stand empty. The, the granaries are abandoned. How the animals moan with hunger. The herds of cattle wander about confused because they have no pasture. The flocks of sheep and goats bleat in misery. Lord, help us. The fire has consumed the wilderness pastures and flames have burned up all the trees. Even the wild animals cry out. To you because the streams have dried up and the fire has consumed the wilderness pastures. And the church said, Amen. And what do we say to that? Certainly walked into this knowing I wasn't going to get a lot of amens today. And what do you say? You just read that and go, Dear Lord, I don't want to be any part of that. John talks about the day of the Lord. Now, if I got up and said, guys, I'm going to talk to you about the day of the Lord. What would we expect? Probably, oh, yeah, the trumpet will sound or, man, the day of the Lord. That's, whew, that sounds awesome. I want to be a part of that. The day of the Lord is a central concept in the book of Joel. Israelites believed the day of the Lord would be a joyous day, a day of salvation when God would intervene to judge all of Israel's enemies and reestablish the Israelite rule over Canaan. That's what they wanted. Even when Jesus is born, we don't want a humble servant born in a stable in a manger. No, 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 no. We're looking for a king. 
who's going to come, rule with an iron fist, and reestablish our dominance. So they're thinking, day of the Lord, come on. All these guys, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Hittites, the Hivites, oh, come on, Lord, conquer them all. Let the day of the Lord come. But the prophet Amos warned that the day of the Lord would not be light for them, but he says it would be darkness. Why? Because they were living in rebellion. Notice what he says. They were still going to the temple. They were still bringing their offerings. They were still coming to the temple. They had altar workers. God forbid that the church gets so comfortable coming to the temple that they think the day of the Lord is just a good thing. But if they're living in rebellion and their priorities are not right, we better, we better, better wake up and go, where's my heart? Self-confident Israelites assumed God would always be on their side, but their sins had, in fact, made them God's enemies. And because of that, they now deserved his full punishment. And even though Joel is addressing a locust plague destroying vegetation, it was also a prophetic word for the future about anybody who comes to the Lord. And he says, here's what's going to happen if you obey. Here's what happens if you don't. And Revelation shows the end. The locusts are there again, but this time not to destroy vegetation, but to literally destroy humanity who does not, who do not have the seal of God. Joel paints this bleak picture in Joel 2, 9, as if it wasn't already bleak enough. He says, they swarm over the city, run along its walls. They enter all the houses. You couldn't just lock them out. Imagine. You ever get a bee or something in your house? Imagine your house filled with locusts. There was never, you couldn't go anywhere to get away from them. Climbing like thieves through the windows. The earth quakes as they advance and the heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars no longer shine. The Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army. And they follow his orders. Wait, excuse me? God's, God's using destructive elements to get his people's attention? This is the kind of stuff we can't wrap our brains around sometimes. But if God was looking to just punish, we've seen times where Sodom and Gomorrah just fire and brimstone. <laughs> But he doesn't do that with his people. He could have. He could have a hundred times over. Just destroyed him, wiped him out, started over. But he loves his people so much. There's times he'll say, I got to get their attention. I got to do whatever I got to do to get their attention. I love them too much to let them continue on this same path. And so it says, they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? It sounds so bleak. Who can possibly survive? I mean, again, imagine if I just got up and preached. And I was like, you drunkards, you wine bearers, here's what's going on. The day of the Lord is here. It's a terrible day. Who can possibly survive? See you next Sunday. 
If you're watching online, if you somehow still manage to be here, <laughs> come back for a more exciting, fun message next week. But we're not going to ignore parts of Scripture. It sounds so bleak. It sounds like the curse of sin. Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin are death. What else can we say? Who can possibly survive? If we've all sinned and the wages of sin are death, we're all doomed. Have a good day. Survival is based solely on our response to our Savior because it goes on and says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Joel gives Judah and Jerusalem and even us today the answer on how to avoid the great and terrible day that is talked about in Joel and Revelation. By the way, it's Revelation. It's not Revelations. It's just a pet peeve. When you, when you teach somebody a Bible study, don't say the book of Revelations. It's just one revelation. Joel 2.12. That is why the Lord says, turn. What does turn mean? Repent. Repentance is a turning. It's a turning away. He says, turn to me now. He does not say, pray about turning to me next week. I want to invite you to turn to me someday. He says, I am telling you what to do with this. And that is turn to me right now. Book of Acts says, today is the day of salvation. If you're going, well, I don't know about the bride of Christ thing, the water baptism, Jesus name thing, the repentance thing. I'm just not sure. God is saying, turn to me right now, today, while there is time. We don't preach these messages very much anymore. But church, there is going to come a time where there is no more time. So all the things that were like, someday I'll, I'll do that. I was talking this morning, or this, just earlier in the service. Someday I'll do live insurance. Someday I'll do the will. Someday I'll get an executor. Someday I'll figure out uh, who's going to have custody of my children if something happens. Yeah, 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 but, but that's someday. But the more important stuff is someday I'm going to come to an altar. Someday I'm going to repent of my sins. Someday I'm going to get serious about God. Someday I'm going to develop a prayer life. Someday I'm going to serve in ministry. Someday I'm going to be baptized in Jesus' name. Someday I'm going to speak in tongues and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in those tongues. Someday I'm going to preach my first message. Someday I'm going to serve God. But Scripture says, take no thought for the morrow. Scripture tells us, paints us these pictures of we're not promised tomorrow. So all your plans about what you might do one day, the trumpet I can't say this. The trumpet could sound tonight. Preachers been preaching this for hundreds of years, and that's why they even say in, in, in Peter, oh, where's the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, y'all been hearing that same message. And that's why it sometimes can just rock us to sleep. Because people have been saying this stuff forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's coming. It's coming. I understand it. People have been saying that forever. And you know what? I intend at some point I'm going to get serious. But what happens when the trumpet sounds and all you're left with is your intentions? I wish I'd have a message about the grace of God. This is a message about the grace of God. 
We don't look at locusts as being a grace of God for the Israelite people, but that was the grace of God. He could have destroyed them. And instead of leaving them on this path, he sends a preacher that says, what are you doing? Wake up, God. The the day of the Lord is coming and we better get ourselves ready. And so he says, give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Meaning we should come, not with an arrogance, but a humility of God. I want to lay my flesh down, Lord. I want to, I want to, I want to repent in your presence. I want, to, I want to understand that it's only by your grace that I'm still here. He says, don't tear your clothing in grief. He says, because that's all they would do. Put on burlap, tear your clothes. Oh, yes, it's a visible sign of mourning. He says, don't tear your clothes no more. He says, tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because sometimes even the strongest believers have been walking with God. He wasn't talking to a bunch of people who were just, no, I've never heard about this. This is amazing. There's going to be a mighty outpouring of the Spirit. No, no, this was church people. These were believers. And he was saying, you slipped away at some point, but it's time to return to a greater depth. Could it be that on this Sunday afternoon that God is once again, thank the Lord without locusts, but once again calling his church to say, it's time to return to me. It's time to get back to where we once were. At some point, whatever happened, whatever caused it, there was a slipping away, a lack of focus, but right now I'm saying return. Come back to the Lord. He's merciful. He's compassionate, which sounds strange as the whole book has been about locusts destroying everything and them not even being able to live. But the prophet turns the, turns the table here and he says, no, God is merciful. He's just, we can come before him right now. And if we will just come and repent and return to him, it says he is eager to relent and not punish. That's the God that we serve. It wasn't about the locusts. It was about the grace of a God who says, I love you too much to let you go. Just like a parent would say, I love you too much to play football in Highway 291. I love you too much to say, go to the restroom with a stranger and I'll meet you back. No, a parent won't do stuff like that. And the kid will say, ah, you restrict me all the time. You don't let me have it. No, 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 no. I love you too much to put you in a dangerous place. God looks at his church and says, I love you. If I need to send locusts, I will send locusts. But you better understand the day's coming where the locusts ain't here. They're to eat vegetation. But there's going to be a a wrath being poured out in the earth. And I'm telling you this because I don't want you to be a part of it. And he says in verse 14, who knows? Perhaps... He will give you a reprieve, sending a blessing instead of a curse. Is our God strong enough to turn something that looks like a curse into a blessing? The wages of sin are death. All have sinned, but Jesus. Oh, grace is getting what you do not deserve. I deserve death. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve.
because of this mercy and grace, there's hope for the future. And Joel 2, 23 says, rejoice. What? We're just talking about locusts and death. And all of a sudden, he just shifts and says, repent, come back to me. Rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For the rain he sends demonstrates faithfulness. Once more, the autumn rains will come, as well as the rains of spring. The threshing floors will again be piled high with grain. People just need a message of hope. And so he calls calls their attention in, and there's a turning and a repentance. But without that, there's not this. See, we want to get to the messages of let's, let's shout and hang from the chandeliers and roll on the floor and beat the drum and play the organ. But there's not that if there's not this. And he says, the threshing floors, they're going to be piled high of grain. The presses will overflow. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, the cutting locusts. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. What? Why would you do such a thing? Because I love you. Once again, you will have all the food you want. You will never, I'm sorry, you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. Then you will know that I am among my people Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is no other. Never again will my people be disgraced. Judah and Jerusalem were so nearsighted. They just wanted the locusts gone. They just wanted the plague to end. Today's problem to be gone. Could it be that we live the same way? The thing that happens that knocks us to our knees, we're just going, God, I beg you, take it away. Take it away. I don't want it. Lord, I hate this discomfort. I hate this pain. Take it away in Jesus' name. And then we get real passionate. Well, stomp the floor in the name of Jesus take this away in the name of the Lord God and God's going no I'm not taking it away because I'm the one who sent it because I'm the one who's trying to get you to your knees I'm the one who's trying to get you to turn from your current situation and all the things that have distracted you I'm the one that's trying to get your eyes back on me I'm the one that sent this And the prophet said he was going to take it a step further. He says, it's not just a hope for restoration of crops, but God uses what is today to prepare us for tomorrow. And tomorrow, there's hope for greater things. And that's where the the, the prophet Joel, this is, so we just preached this passage. This is the only one that we stick with, and it's powerful. But if you don't understand what he says before this, you're going to miss this. But this is where Joel then says, repent, turn. I sent this. Turn to God. God can do this. But then Joel Joel speaks these words and says, then after doing all these things, you got to understand the whole context of the book. He says, then after doing these things, I will pour out my spirit upon all all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old man will dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike, which was not happening at that point. He says, I'm going to cause wonders in the heavens and earth, blood and 
fire and columns of smoke. And he says, the sun will become dark. And oh, wow, that sounds just like what John the Revelator was writing about for the people that weren't serving God. He's saying, if you serve me, you get on the right side and you experience it on this side rather than on that side. He says, it's going to become dark. The moon will turn to blood before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for some on Mount Zion in Jerusalem will escape just though the Lord has said these will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called that's what he says when he says if you will here's all the things talking about locusts and destruction and pain and poison and all this stuff but he says turn to me repent get away from what you're currently living in focus on me I'm the one that's sending this get to your knees and then when you do that there's coming a day that I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh and people are going to prophesy and men and women alike slave and free everybody I got a promise for every single person. The terrible day of the Lord is coming. John wrote about the wrath of God being poured out in the earth, but we can escape it if we're sealed. The locusts will not touch those who are sealed. But how are we sealed? Joel, Joel just said, repent. Repent of your sins, and then God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Guess what? I don't care if you're here being a naysayer, negative, no faith. It's still for you. It's still for you. He wants to pour out a spirit upon all flesh. The Old Testament prophet was writing about something, I'm almost done, that had not yet happened. But then in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost came. And young men and old men and women and children, rich and poor, we're all gathered in an upper room. And just like Joel says, they began to speak with other tongues so much that when Peter stands up and people are going, what is going on here? The apostle Peter was the one that said, this is that. Because for them, they were still longing for Joel's prophetic word to come to pass. But in their minds, it was rise up Israel establish them with an iron fist and take down all the enemies around them. And Peter says, y'all missed it. Right now we're speaking in tongues as the spirit of God is giving us the utterance. And you were waiting for some ruler to take over. And instead, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Right now, this is, and if you want this experience, you can have it too. And 3,000 and then 5,000 people were added to the church daily. And so we, we start to see, boom, God just blow up and grow his church. And so as many as the Lord our God will call, that means here in 2024, if you will repent of your sins, he's still pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. It's a promise. But look as I close, look how Joel ends his writing. See, we, man, locusts, destruction, and all that stuff. Normally, I just hear God pour out a spirit upon all flesh. That's the, that's the funnest wonder. That's the most fun wonder to preach right there. There's a whole lot more to this. And so then he promises this incredible thing. God's going to pour out his spirit. But to many of those Israelites, they didn't hear it. They, there's no spirit, no speaking tongues, the spirit of God. All they wanted was one thing. They were willing to hear a message 
and they only viewed it through the lens of what they wanted. And I understand in 2024, if you're here and you want to be a naysayer, negative, no faith, um, you're also going to view it through a lens of what you want. But Peter said, this outpouring of the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, this is that which Joel's prophesied about. Peter said that, not me. Not the organization this church is a part of. No, no, no. Peter said that. But then Joel ends and he says, in verse three, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. There the day of the Lord will soon arrive. So I ask you, are you waiting this afternoon in the valley of decision? Where are you at right now? Where are you at in your walk with God spiritually? I'm not going to judge you. I'm just asking. Where are you at? Are you ready? If God comes back, if the trumpet sounds tonight, are you prepared to meet Jesus? The Lord's ready to save. He's ready to forgive your sins. He will wash them away today in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. He will fill you with his spirit, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Welcome to the valley of decision. Now that you're in a dangerous spot, because guess what? Now you know too much. You might not have been in the valley of decision before today. Now you know too much. Welcome to the valley of decision. But it's not just for the person who, well, I've never been filled with the Holy Ghost. I need to, I'd love to speak. I've never been baptized. I love, it's for them, absolutely. But for every believer who every day you have a choice. Are you just bringing the offering and coming to the temple daily? Or are you really in this? Is there still a hunger deep in your soul that says, God, I want you more than anyone, more than anything? Or have we walked this way and served in ministry and had credentials and titles for so long that at some point did we, did we become experts of the word but lose our hunger along the way? God, forgive us if we did. Young people, you're in a valley of decision. Oh, I've already got the Holy Ghost. I understand. What are you going to do with it now? What are you planning on doing with that? You're in a pivotal point of your life. And every day you can make a choice. You're in a valley of decision. Every person here, every person online, it's not just about the initial plan for God's salvation. It's about God trying to get his bride ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's about him saying, behold, I come quickly. And the trumpet's going to sound. The dead in Christ are going to rise first. And he tells us these things. Why? Because he says, walk ready. He says, lift up your heads. Your redemption draws nigh. There was a readiness that he wanted his people to walk with. 
He wanted his church to be prepared. And so the valley of decision is where we currently are. For some, that's taking that initial step into repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, being filled with his spirit, his plan for your salvation. For others, it's, man, I know I ain't been living right. But it's time to get serious. It's time to get my face on the ground, my knees bowed down and go, God, I want to turn back toward you. I'm so thankful for your mercy. I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful that I can hear a message like this and you reach to my soul once again. And you don't leave me in this place. God, I, I want you. I want to turn toward you. And so right now, I invite you to stand to your feet. I invite you to find a place to pray. This valley of decision is here. And I invite you. Thousands upon thousands are waiting in the valley of decision. Make sure you're not one of them. Make sure you're one that goes, no, no, no. Ain't no valley decision for me. I, I have decided. I have decided. Nothing will distract. Nothing will detract. There's no other thing in my life more important right now than my walk, my relationship with Jesus Christ. No human thing, no thing on this earth is going to detract or distract me. God, I have decided I'm yours. I pursue you right now. Lord, nothing, nothing will take away from your plan. God, I want you. I want to hear your voice. I want to walk with clarity. I want to be what you've called me to be. I desire you. I long for you. Lord, I lay the things on the altar right now that have been distracting, that I've been carrying, Lord. I give them to you, Jesus. Forgive me. God, help me, Lord. I want to get back to being focused on you, consumed by you, on fire for you. Jesus, I want nothing more than you right now. God, forgive me if I've swayed or gone from one side to the next, if I've backslid in any way. Forgive me, Lord Jesus, if I lost my passion, my fervor, my desire. God, I want to be ready. And if you call us home tonight, if the trumpet sounds tonight, Lord, I want to see your face. I want to be with you in eternity, Jesus. I want to make sure I'm ready, God. I want nothing to get in the way, Jesus. Help me, help me, God, to once again just bring my attention, my focus back to the things that really matter, Jesus. Oh, in your name. Oh, cry out to him this afternoon. Cry out to Jesus.